department and it's real stressful work. So I appreciate <laughs> this. Um, I'm going to start with a song. And this is kind of funny because I noticed as people were trying to sign in, Jamaica Osorio was trying to sign in and I almost kicked them out. And it turns out it's my dad. Um, so I'm glad I didn't kick him out. I don't know why he's pretending to be me. Um, this is a song I usually sing with my dad. Um, and he plays it a little different, a little better, but I'm going to open with the song for us today. My friends and I would sometimes roam trails among the chaos and in the evening we'd come home to see her standing there Thank you for the, the virtual claps. I'm gonna 
I'm gonna share my screen now. Zoom is teaching us all how to be better at transitions. Um, I'm working on it. Okay, so you should be able to see my screen now, hopefully. Uh, here's the the title slide. Not not really that important because I don't really believe in titles. But anyway, Kukia Aloha, Mo'olalo Aloha Aina, an Indigenous Resurgence by me, Dr. Jamaica Heolimali Kalani Osorio. Um, I wanted to open with this song in particular because this song is completely wrapped up in, in everything I've come to, to know and love about the Mona. Um, and, and we're going to talk a bit about the Mona today in terms of Aloha'ina resurgence and, and Mo'olalo Aloha'ina. And, and the first time I remember my father singing this song for the beauty of Mauna Kea was at a Mauna Kea community in Waianae District Park. I think this was like 2014. Um, and he tells us before he sings a song that the song is written by his classmate, his high school classmate, Keola Beamer, while they were still in high school in the 1960s, before there were any telescopes on this mountain. And as he's telling us this story, I can see him slowly conjuring the memory of a Mauna Kea he grew up with, one that I have never seen, a Mauna Kea without telescopes, without development, a Mauna Kea free from this kind of violence. And I can tell my father's memory is, is faded, not because he's old, but because so much has changed. Um, it's hard to hold, it's stashed away and covered with decades of new images, new realities as a Kanaka Maoli who hasn't lived on the island of his birth in the Malu, the sacred shade and protection of that mountain since his adolescence. And as he sings the song, this is the important part of the story, I'm standing right next to him, I don't know this song, I'm on stage in front of a microphone, um, I'm fumbling through the harmony of a song whose melody I don't even know, whose words I don't even know. Um, and I have to admit this is something that happens a lot for us <laughs> on stage. Um, and in that moment, I'm too frustrated with the slow pace of the song and my lack of expertise. And I'm too caught up in my own insecurities and, and ego to really fully recognize the power of this occasion. And now as I look back, I can only appreciate it as my own faded memory, a recollection that if I'm not careful, might slowly slip away. In 2014, the first time I sang this song, the fight to protect Mauna Awakea was in my mind, purely political. Uh, to me, the conflict relied on questions of legal and political jurisdiction. I truly insisted that our future victories in Hawaii rested solely on those legal and political questions, right? Hawaii, had an um, Hawaii was illegally overthrown. We had our own kingdom. Uh, this is about uh, indigenous rights and consent on our land. And, and all of that is still true. But my focus on the political and legal realities was mostly because there was a time when I believed that law and conventional politics would save us, that that was the route we people needed to go to get our country back, to liberate ourselves. And I say this acknowledging the fact that knowing and loving and caring for Mauna Kea changes you. So in 2014, when I first sang the song, I had never actually been to the mountain. Um, I hadn't been changed yet by her mana and power. And that knowing, that loving and caring for each other at the Mona changes us as well. So if my time on Mona Awakea has taught me anything, um, it's how much of our mo'olelo, our history, story, literature, and mana, the power of those stories, I was forsaking and propelling such a limited belief. Um, and suffice to say, right, a lot has changed for me in the Lahui since 2014. 
So today I'm going to explore a bit about this transformation. I'm going to tell some personal stories and, you know, some larger stories that are also still feel really personal to me about the early days of the establishment of the Pu'uhol. Uh, the Pu'uhonu'awa Pu'uhuluhulu and the Pilina, the intimacies and relationships that we cultivated in the malu of our mountain. I choose to tell this particular mo'olalo because it's the intimate Pilina that has made possible one of the greatest uprisings of our people since the 19th century. I also tell this mo'olalo in a time where we are reflecting not just how this uprising ties us to our kupuna as we live through a terrifying and distancing pandemic that on a daily basis reminds me of the eha and the komaha, the, the heaviness of that eha um, of our ancestors, right? So this story, um, the story I'm presenting to you today, the first time I wrote it down was pre-pandemic. And so hopefully we'll also have to work through what it means to be in pandemic in this mo'olalo. Um, okay, so the birth of the Pu'uhonua o Pu'uhuluhulu on July 12th, 2019. And a lot of you will know this story, but I also know that a lot of you don't know this story that intimately. So we're just all gonna learn together. On July 12th, 2019, approximately 300 people met in the cover of night at a beach park pavilion in Kona, Hawaii. It was at this meeting that organizer in Kia'i, Ko'okahi Kanuha asked his fellow Kanaka, what kind of kupuna will you be? Charged with the strength of his ancestors and the hope of his future descendants, Kohokahi reminded us that, that the gathering of Kia'i, that when our mo'upuna, our descendants, reminisce about our ancestors, they will look at the deeds they committed in their youth, right? We don't just celebrate the things our kupuna did when they were old, right? We celebrate the things they did when they were young. And so that we need to kind of step into that kuleana as kupuna in our youth. And so it was decided that evening that a small group of Kanaka would caravan to Pu'uhuluhulu to occupy the base of our sacred mountain and consecrate a Pu'uhonua, a place of refuge, while we waited for the rest of the Lahui to join us. Um, it's important to mention and really carry this with us that this was not the first time Hawaiians stood up and resisted development on our sacred mauna. In fact, this particular struggle began in 1968 when the state of Hawaii via the Board of Land and Natural Resources issued a 65 year general lease for 13,000 acres of ceded lands uh, at the summit of Mauna Kea to the University of Hawaii to build a single observatory, right? So if people who are joining us today, you know, believe that indigenous people should have the right to self-determine and decide what happens on their land, but still can't quite understand why we're so angry about this telescope, this is a bit of context, right? 1968, the state says, UH, here's this master lease. You get to decide basically what's gonna happen on the summit of this mountain. Um, over the next 20 years, developers build a number of telescopes and comp and like buildings and auxiliary buildings without permits. Um, this is not uncommon in Hawaii. Developers tend to kind of play fast and loose with the rules and then ask for forgiveness later by applying for permits. And this is what happened in the case of Mauna Kea. Um, really importantly in this master lease, at any time in the 65 years, the lease could be vacated for failure to properly care for and manage the Mauna. Um, and there are multiple instances, uh, you know, through an audit that ha happens in 1998 and other times where it's demonstrated that the University of Hawaii and DLNR has not managed this Mauna properly. Um, and so at any point they could have vacated the lease, but they didn't. Um, I don't need to tell you why, it's pretty obvious. Um, in any case, uh, this is the corrupt history that the 30 meter telescope walks into when they apply for a permit in um 
what is it, 20, 2010, to build what would be the largest and most devastating structure built within the conservation use district on Mauna Kea's summit. Um, at this point, there are already 30 meters, not 30, 13 oh. telescopes on the mountain. Um, and another thing I want to point out is that, yes, Hawaiians have been fighting telescopes on this mountain, along with a lot of other things we've been fighting since the 60s. But there was also a really powerful uprising that occurred in 2014 and 2015. And many of the people in the photos you see on this slide uh, took their stand again in 2019. So there's a continuity, right? So when I step in in 2019 and 2020 and I start talking about this intimate pilina forged on the Mauna, we really have to historicize this. Like a lot of the people who were there in 2019, they already built that pilina years ago. Um, and it says something really profound that they were ready to accept more folks who, like myself, who didn't stand with them in 2014 and 2015 into the fold of that upenna, that net of intimacy. Um, so a little bit of, of background between 2014 and 2015, at least 40 kia'i were arrested um, in an, an effort to protect the mountain. There was also a second contested case hearing in 2016 and 2018, in October of 2018, the state Supreme Court rules that TMT can proceed after all these instances of demonstrating the injustice of this development project. Um, and through through all of this, Mehana Kihoi utters the, one of the most brilliant phrases throughout this movement. She says, TMT thought they were going to build a telescope. Instead, they woke a nation. Um, and this really speaks to what happens in 2019 when Kia'i returned to Mauna Awakea. So the current and ongoing movement, right, right, we're looking at right now was born out of out of an understanding of this genealogy. And it's it's really important that it's that when you come to the Mona, that if you don't know this history, that you like quickly learn it, right? Because one of the violences that has happened is that many people see this fight as really new and emerging, when in fact there have been folks who have dedicated much of their lives so that 2019 could happen, 2020 could continue to happen, right? Um, so on July 14th, the Pu'uhonua is officially consecrated. On July 15th, eight um, Kanaka chained themselves to a cattle guard with the Pu'uhua of um, a handful of other Kanaka who watched over us. A few of those folks are, are in this um, Zoom call right now. On July 16th, uh, the Pu'uhonua grows from you know maybe a couple hundred to over a thousand people, and then the governor decides to deploy five distinct enforcement agencies, um, including the National Guard, in an attempt to scare us and remove us from the mountain. The rise of our Lahui today has everything to do with the fact that more and more of our people are being educated and taking up our kuleana uh, and overturning this long history of injustice. Right, we're learning more about the mismanagement of the mountain, but we're also learning more about the mismanagement of all of our lands, of Pohakuloa, of Hunana Niho, of Kahuku, um, of Navai Eha. Right, more and more people are starting to take this on and understand that this is a personal fight for them and that they have the kuleana to step up. Um, and more so, it would be foolish uh, and insincere for me to limit the scope and impact of this movement to the fight to obstruct the construction of just one telescope. The TMT, in 2019, the TMT became kind of the material, material opponent we directed our energies toward defeating, but it's clear through every stage of protest, demonstration, and public comment period that our aim as Kanaka reaches far beyond the blocking of a single development project. 
And I believe that we can say this also of the state of Hawaii and its unwavering and overzealous support of TNT. Right. A lot of people ask, like, why are they still pushing this project when obviously Hawaiians are so great at blocking it? Um, and, and maybe maybe the state was really invested in the telescope. They thought it was a cool toy in the beginning. Maybe they're really terrified of being sued by the TNT. Like these are all real theories that we can put our mana into. But it doesn't take much paying attention to realize that the fight over Mauna Kea is not just about a telescope or more broadly about development. No, this battle has grown into something much larger for both of us, right? The state of Hawaii spent over $11 million in enforcement operations in a matter of months in an attempt to remove Kia'i. In fact, after 2015, when um, like dozens of Kia'i were arrested, BLNR put hundreds of thousands of dollars into buying um, riot gear, right? They were gearing up, they knew we were coming back. This all in approach, right? All the money, all the cars, throwing all their eggs in one basket demonstrates the way that Pu'uhonua and our growing grassroots power pose a serious threat to business as usual in Hawaii. Uh, we created a living alternative to the settler society in Hawaii. The Pu'uhonua offered an eternal alternative present and future. And of course, we weren't completely free of the seduction of capitalism and patriarchy and Christian morality. Like we had to negotiate a lot of those things and continue to negotiate a lot of those things today. Um, but the Pu'uhonua still represented the potential of a growing formation rooted in a governing formation rooted in aloha'aina, sustainability, and Kanaka-led cooperation. And this is the most powerful threat we pose to the state of Hawaii. Folks at the Pu'uhonua, we lived in abundance in a society that was drowning in scarcity. And we can look at this even more clearly now, right? Living in the pandemic reality that we do where the state of Hawaii seems so ill-equipped to meet the general, the basic needs of our people um, and is so interested in meeting the desires and imaginations of foreigners coming to Hawaii but can't meet the basic needs of our people. The Pu'uhonua showed that we actually have the resources and the manpower we need to meet our own needs. And that's dangerous. Um, and so we knew a lot of this history when we traveled to, to Pu'uhuluhulu on the evening of July 12th. We were aware that this fight was just the next iteration of Hawaiian resurgence and resilience to the rampant overdevelopment of our lands at the hands of our, our occupiers. Uh, we were also aware that the fight to protect the Mauna is a part of a larger genealogy of Hawaiian resistance. Um, that has been growing since the 1960s. From the anti-eviction struggles from the early 1970s, the Hawaiian language revival movement of the early 80s, and our ongoing struggle to protect our natural and cultural resources, our people are building upon an expansive history of indigenous resilience. Um, this movement that I'm reflecting back on is often talked about the Hawaiian, as the Hawaiian Renaissance um, or the contemporary Hawaiian movement. But regardless of what you call it, uh, most will agree that that movement and our continued struggle is made possible by a single idea and practice uh, that is aloha'ina. So hopefully most of you know this story, right? In 1976, the phrase aloha'ina was reborn into contemporary Hawaiian national consciousness after nine brave Kanaka Maoli traveled to Ko'olawe in the first stage of the attempts to stop the bombing of the island that had been ongoing since World War II. In fact, today I got an email that says this month, I think October 22nd, marks 30 years since the bombing stopped. Um, and in addition to what their sacrifice offered us in terms of protecting and saving this particular island, um, 
one of the things that has been really the gift that keeps on giving is this phrase, Aloha right? Today, every single Hawaiian battle that has followed is informed by that phrase. And we often reflect on the PKO, on George Helm and Kimo Mitchell and, and all of the others who survived that fight uh, when we think about what it means to stand as a Hawaiian. Um, and then of course, a lot of the folks who stood for Koho'olawe stood on the front lines for Mauna Kea. We have Auntie Maxine Kaule Leo, we have Auntie Loretta Riddy, we have Uncle Walter Riddy. Um, the continuity is a part of this pilina I'm talking about. Once you step into a Aina, you're, you're kind of stuck and you got to keep moving with that movement. Um, okay, so Aina, what does it mean? Uh, contemporarily, when I was growing up, Aina meant patriotism. You know, and, and I was perfectly fine with using that word. I'm a patriot of my country. Um, some Hawaiian scholars, in particular women, Wahine like Noi Noi Silva, have been really brilliant to push back on, on that idea, right? Because patriotism articulates a certain kind of allegiance to a certain kind of nation that is rooted in patriarchy, right? So when we say Aloha is patriotism, one of the things that comes up is what I'm really saying is that my vision for a nation, my vision for governance is not so different from my American occupiers, right? That I just want to be in control of that power rather than transform that power. And so Noi Noi Silva reminds us that nationalism and patriotism tend to exalt the virtues of a people or a race, but Aloha exalts the land right? The land is at the center of, of what needs to be celebrated and what needs to be protected. She also says, quote, Aloha is a complex concept that includes recognizing the way we are integral part of the Aina and the Aina is an integral part of us. This is, an, this is a relationship we share. When Noi Noi Silva talks about Aloha in this way, I think of Malo and the way that he talks about the difference between Moku and Aina. So he writes, um, God, I don't, have the citation in front of me, but he, he describes the difference between moku and aina. And he says moku is land that is severed by the sea, right? So any landmass that is surrounded by ocean. So Hawaii Island is a moku, Oahu is a moku, Maui is a moku, right? Because it's surrounded. It literally means to be cut off. Um, but aina, moku becomes aina once kanaka are living on that aina, right? So what he's teaching us is that both kanaka and the land have the mana to transform each other, that we need to work um, in intimate relations with each other to make it aina, to make it something that feeds, to honor it for what it is. Um, there are also other ways that our kupuna defined aloha aina. This is one by Navahi. Um, he says, o ke aloha aina o ia ka ume magineti i loko ka puuwai o kalahu i e kauki ana i kona hoku oko ola na kila ana o kona oneha nao pono i. Ina i hoko koke ia na kui hau magineti i kahi ho kahi a laila he mea mau popo loa me ke kana loa o leo kamana o ua ume like no la koa pau loa ke kahi i ke kahi. Oh, he's a good writer. Okay, so what he, what is he saying for those of us who may not know, right? Aloha aina um, is the magnetic force that draws from your heart, uh, the heart of the lahui towards fighting for independence um, and, and fighting for like the rights of the land that they're born on. He says, if you take one of these magnets, one of these Aloha magnets, and you put it close enough to another Aloha magnet, that without any doubt, they will be fully bound together. Okay, so what is, what is Navahi telling us? He's saying Aloha isn't just about your country and being 
allegiant to the idea of a country and the idea of a nation, right? Aloha is that which draws you to your land to fight for justice and liberation of your land, but also that Aloha recognize each other. And when we fight as Aloha we actually become a community of Aloha that these relationships are, are practiced together. They are inseparable. Um, so by the time we established the Pu'uhonua on, what, what did I say, July 14th, I believe it was, um, Aloha Aina, of course, was a concept that was common among our people, right? You could hear it walking down the street. I hear it in my classrooms. Um, it's written into our contemporary songs. It's expressed through a diverse collection of art. But many of us who are joining a frontline movement for the first time, this would be our first experience, myself included, with the extreme intimacy formed between ourselves and our near and distant ancestors, along with the comrades we were fighting with in this struggle, right? I knew when I went to the Mauna that I was gonna love the Mauna. I didn't know how much I was gonna love her, but I knew that I was gonna fall in love with this mountain. I did not know that it was gonna transform my relationships with the people around me. Um, that my fight to protect the mountain very quickly became a fight to protect the women who stood beside me, that those two things could not be separated. Um, this is a part of how movement work transforms our own mo'olelo around how we think of our values as kanaka. Um, but this mo'olelo is not the only mo'olelo that we took with us to the mauna. Um, I want us to think about how practicing and taking alohaina seriously brought us into a contemporary struggle of alohaina, right? I talked about this, the late 60s into the 70s and 80s and how we're connected to them from our work that we're doing on the Mauna today and in, on the other places we're fighting Mohakuloa, on Maui fighting to protect Ibi Kupuna right like right now this is happening um but it also binds us to an ancient genealogy and pilina with our kupuna in our mo'olelo it takes us all the way back to folks like Umiali Loa and Kumemeha um, and Manono and Kekuo Kalani, right? There's, there's, there's a continuity there that's really important. Um, we can see this really clearly through the proliferation of traditional Ike through daily protocol on the mountain, through the blending of modern civil disobedience tactics and ancient Hawaiian mo'olelo of justice. And one key mo'olelo that informs our struggle to protect Mauna Kea is this mo'olelo I have highlighted here, Kekana by Mamala Hoi. As the story goes, and if I get this wrong, just blame my father because he told me this story. As the story goes, um, during an expansion expedition in Puna, Kamehameha Paiea, also known as Kamehameha I, his foot gets caught in the Pahoehoe, the lava rock, while chasing after a couple of Ai'a from the area. Um, it's unclear why he's chasing them. He's just like, I don't know, I'm, I'm the elite. I can chase whoever I want. He chases them, he falls, he gets stuck. And while he's trapped, one of the Lava'i'a takes his paddle and strikes so forcefully against the head of the future Mo'i that the paddle is shattered. Uh, and that's this Mama Lahoi, the shattering of the paddle. Um, the Levita then ran off. That's exactly what I would do. If I struck a Mo'i's head with a paddle, I would definitely run off. Um, such an offense and violation to the Mo'i, the future Mo'i could have easily resulted in the fishermen being put to death. I mean, even standing over him and casting their shadow upon him could have led to them being put to death. But instead, when the Lava'i'a, when the fishermen were brought before the Ali'i, Kmemeha instated the Kana Waimamalahoi, this law of the splintered paddle. And it says, Ena kanaka e malama o koikea kua, e malama ho ike kanaka nui a meke kanaka iki, e hele ka ele makule kalua hine a meke kama a moi ike ala, a ohe mea nana e ho opilikia. 
um, all you people, all my people, um, that sounds like a rap song, um, take care of the gods. He says Ikeakua, I think he means Kuka Ilimoku. He's definitely not talking about Jesus, just FYI, but Emalama Oko Ikeakua, um, take care also of those people, small, great and small, um, allow the elderly and the young people to lay in the streets without fear of harm. Nothing shall disturb them. And then there's another line, actually. He says, disobey this command and you shall be put to death. We really like really extreme rules. Um, this kind of way is often um, referred to as Hawaii's first human rights law, right? And a lot of people turn to the Mo'olelo for guidance on how our leadership should protect and serve our most valuable communities. It's not hard to see how the state of Hawaii fails at this time and time again, right? Sit and lie bands in Waikiki that literally, or what do we call it now? Compassionate uh, disruption. Uh, the bullshit violence of language is immense in the fake state of Hawaii, um, but it laughs in the face at a mo'olelo and a law, a kanawai, something we're supposed to um, arrange our lives around in respect of that really says, allow the people to lay in the streets without fear of harm. Um, and nothing, this is really important, nothing is safe from the toxic grip of the settler state, which means this mo'olelo has also been grossly misappropriated by the Honolulu Police Department who wear the image of the splintered paddle in the center of their badge. So they've got the story Okramaha saying, allow the people to lay in the streets without fear of harm while they compassionately disrupt them and sweep them from the streets. Um, hashtag defund the police, right? Like nothing's safe from the state. They want, they want it all. They want our stories and our land. Um, what we need to insist is that this mo'olelo and others like it that demonstrate our norms and values of governance are not just wrapping paper. We can dress mechanisms of settler state violence in and call the practice pomo, right? You can't take the kanawamalahoi, stick it on the badge of the HPD and say, that's gonna be a good police force. Just like you can't take the Hawaii state constitution and translate it into Olala Hawaii and say, now it's gonna be a really good and just constitution. That's not how this works. Um, this kanawai and our values are, are laws in which the power lies indisputably upon the aina that birthed them, that the aina itself holds the mana of, of the story. Um, and it reminds us that kanavai can give life and they can take life, uh, making it just as powerful as any city or state statute. So one of the things that happens on the mountain um, and in other places where Kanaka are, are standing up against the settler state is that we are asserting our own norms of governance, right? Rather than, than falling under the laws and the city, city and state statutes that say we need to gather in a particular way or we need to make way for lawful progress and development, we come with our own Kanawai and say, no, our laws of governing say that this is actually the appropriate way to behave here. And we, we say like, let, let our laws duke it out, essentially. Um, it's easy to see how our people on the Mauna have lived up in many ways to the sacred Kanavai. Um, and I think we can also use the Kanavai to be critical and push ourselves to living up to it even more. But think about the Huikupuna Kako, right? The way that immediately the Mauna and the folks on the Mauna took care of the elderly, or the Mauna medics hui, who cared for the physical and emotional and uh, psychological well-being of our people, how those were like 
some of the first two institutions to pop up on the Mauna. The Kapolohokia'i who engaged, who are not security, but were there to maintain the safety of all of our people. And even the Pu'uhuluhulu University who was there to care for the intellectual well-being of our people, to expand our minds, right? In every way, um, the well-being of each and every Kanaka upon the mountain was seriously considered and invested in just as Kamehameha had instructed us. And of course, with, with a longer discussion, we could talk about how, you know, we could critique Kamehameha for other things, but let's just pretend for right now, let's just focus on this story. Um, therefore, the movement to protect Mauna Kea is not only a movement to protect our Aina, it's a movement that is rapidly growing because of our investment in our protection of each other on our Aina. Remember, Aloha Aina is us together and us in the land. It's a movement that brings us in closer alignment to our principles and values as Aloha Aina. So I mentioned the Cattle Guard 8 earlier. Um, at approximately 3 a.m. on July 15th, about a dozen kia'i made our way up the mountain. Uh, Walter Ritty, Kalekua Ka'eo, Noilani Goodyear Ka'opua, E. Michaelani Winchester, Mahiai Dochin, Kamuala Park, Malia Hullaman and myself were to chain ourselves to the cattle grate and that crossed the main access road. Mahialani Ahia, Kahala Johnson, and Jennifer Noilani Ahia and others were there to serve as our protection. Um, and they, they not only cared for us for 12 hours while we were there, but they literally saved our lives in the first 20 minutes of us being there. Um, our objectives as a Hui was really clear. Um, we were there to block any incoming construction vehicles and prohibit any further desecration of the mountain. Each of us were trained in nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience, but we were also, every single, of us, single of one of us, were trained in our mo'olalo in different instances. So we had both of those things to protect us. When we chained ourselves to the cattle guard, we understood that the threat of our arrest and removal was not only offensive in the face of the settler state's lack of jurisdiction over the aina we were chained to, but it also offended a Kanavai as tangible as the crest worn by Hawaii's largest enforcement agency. Um, we carried all of those mo'olalo within us. We remained there in the malu of our sacred mountain, surrounded by the aloha and protection of fellow kia'i for 12 hours. And every single morning since that, until, um, until anti-COVID came, some of the most powerful and fragile members of our Lahui literally slept in that street um, in freezing temperatures while our young devoted themselves to caring for their well-being and safety. The irony here, right, the real big irony here is that by our kanavai, the protection of our aina and our kupuna is the kuleana, the responsibility of leadership. But our leadership instead spend their time and resources planning our removal to allow for the safe passage of construction equipment. This demonstrates to us once again that the state's God is capitalism. The first thing it must protect, but we Kanaka are remembering our gods, our Aina and each other. And we will continue to malama what the state will not. Two days later, the TMT Corporation and the state of Hawaii gave Kia'i another opportunity to demonstrate our commitment to the mountain and each other when they arrested 33 kupuna and five kokua attendants or caretakers at the base of the Mauna Kea Access Road. Um, this was a Wednesday, um, July 17th, 2019. And I watched alongside my Lahui as 38 of our people were, who stood fiercely in their aloha for our aina and our kupuna were hauled away by state and Hawaii enforcement officers. Their names were William K. Freitas, Jean Burke, John Trudale, uh, Teraldi, Richard DeLeon, Michelle Noinoi Wong Wilson, Kaliko Kanahele, Dr. Pua Kanaka'ole Kanahele, Luana 
uh, Busby Neff, Mililani Trask, Damien Onauna Trask, Walter Riddy, Loretta Riddy, Flora Ho'okano, Maxine Kaule Leo, James Nani Ole, Alika Desha, Desmond Haumea, Kelly Skippy Ioane, Daniel Lee, Thomas Belsky, James Aberna Abertini, Donna Keala Leong, Renee Price, Momi Patricia Green, Anna Kaho'opi'i, Raynette Robinson, Edleen Pele Holani, Haloli Reese, Dean Anna Hurwitz, Mahea Kalima, Cheryl Kualoha Avai, Linda Leilani Lindsay Kaapuni, Deborah Lee, Carmen Hulu Lindsay, Marie Alohalani Brown, Daisha D. Chun, Abel Liu, and Liko Okalani Martin. Um, I say their names because we should know their names. Um, hundreds and thousands of people clung to their Facebook and Instagram feeds while nearly a thousand kia'i lined the Alahulukupuna, the Monica Access Road, and flooded the Pahoehoe with our tears. And one of the most beautiful things that happened in this moment is that we were prepared for 12 kupuna to get arrested. And every time a kupuna stood up or was carried away, another sat in their place until literally all the kupuna who were able to get arrested were arrested. Um, and that shook the enforcement agencies that showed up there. They were not prepared for this kind of engagement and neither were our people to a large extent. Um, the day after our people were arrested, we moved from being about a thousand people on the access road to anywhere between three and 5,000 people in the middle of the week showing up on the Monica access road. Immediately after the Kupuna were taken away, their space was filled with our Wahine. And when the Manawahine took the road, we remembered the teachings of our Kupuna. We sang our mele, chanted our oli, some danced hula. In Hawaii, we often come face to face with our ohana in uniform on the, on the front lines. Many of our kupuna were hauled away by their nephews, by their cousins. Um, many of us wahine stood face to face with our cousins, our uncles, some even with their siblings. This makes for a complex and intimate experience with police violence on the front line of our movement. This is one of the things we're still navigating today. Um, we've reminded these police officers that we stood there for our children and their children. But most of all, we held tightly onto each other. We insisted that we would protect our Lahui as fiercely as we would protect our Mona. We understood in that moment how the two were the same. And it's hard for me to really demonstrate how powerful that moment was to stand linked arm to arm with many women I had never met before. And in that moment were the most important women to me in my life. And the people who stood beside, behind us were the most important people to me in my life, that nothing could separate us from each other. All of that pinina was really important to me in that moment. But the other thing that happened is that movement brought people who had never been to the Mona to the Mona for the first time. And in that, we cultivated in Join our people an, an intimacy with a part of our idea that we had been strategically estranged from. So one of the things we need to pay attention to is how our removal from land is explicitly done so that it will disrupt our intimacy with that land. And therefore, we will not feel the kuleana to continue to protect it, right? I think personally of a place like Waikiki. I grew up in Pololo Valley in the Ahupua'a of Waikiki. By historical standards, that Ahupua'a is, is a place that I have a kuleana to, um, both in a responsibility to protect, but also like a right to go and enjoy that place. And I, I've got to be really honest with you, as I got older, it was not a place I ever wanted to be. And this is strategic in the way that settler colonialism works, right? Push you off that land 
um, make that settlement seem natural or so overwhelming that you cannot push back upon it. Um, and then kind of watch as they just continue to develop the hell out of it and kill that Lena. So one of the things we learn on the Mauna is that a part of the resistance of protecting these places is actually bringing people back to these places um, and letting them build that Pelina for themselves. Okay, I just have a, a few more things. So I want to articulate how important it is that in addition to fighting the 30 meter telescope, in addition to the, the push to remove every single telescope off of that mountain, how important that is to us, that it's even more important that we remember how much we love this place. And that when we fall in love with a place like Mauna Kea, we learn how to fall in love again with all of our places, right? Mauna Kea, yes, is sacred because it's the highest peak in the Pacific. And there's all kinds of ceremony around why this particular place needs to be protected. But there are also, when we understand what it means to be in Aloha Aina, we understand that all of our Aina is sacred and that none of it um, none of it should be sold off to the highest bidder, that our relationship with those places need to change. Um, so as we continue to grow, um, I think it's going to be that very Aloha Aina, that not the patriotism Aloha Aina, but that Aloha Aina we feel when we're with each other, that's really going to shape and move our, our movements. I'm telling you folks this story just about a year after I moved down from the Mauna, um, and my whole Aloha Aina continued to hold and occupy Pu'uhonua months after my departure. And there are folks um, who have no hope, who continue to know pa at the base of the mountain, uh, who watch out for all of us and continue to sacrifice for all of us. Um, this is important. Um, one, in the same way that it's important that we recognize the genealogy, it's important to recognize the, the unrecognized labor that is continuing to happen in protection of our mountain. And there's so much of our movement and what it took to hold that line for nine months that I do not know because I wasn't there. I was there for two months. Um, and I won't pretend to know about the time and place that I no longer inhabit. And of course, the global pandemic has also forced us all to, in March, to kind of adjust the way we stand in protection of our land. It's also challenging us to think of how we stand in protection of each other. So it's really strange to kind of stand before you guys today um, this experience as a storyteller to tell such a recent mo'olalo that also seems so strangely far away. Um, the song for the beauty of Mauna Kea, Kelvima talks about seeing her in his dreams. And I think about dreaming of Mauna Kea the same way I think about dreaming in Hawaiian. I, I remember the time in my life when I stopped dreaming Mako'olalo Hawaii. And I remember the shift in my day to day and the way that I lived my life in the last few months when I stopped regularly dreaming about the Mauna. That that's a disruption of Pinina too. Um, and in addition to the grief I feel from being far away from our Lahui, that's a grief I think a lot of us who stood and spent a significant time on, on the Mauna are carrying with us as well. But even so, right, even though it feels so far away, if I sit long enough, quiet enough, listen to the right songs, I can still conjure the memory of what it feels like to stand in the magnificent shadow of our mountain beside the people that I love. That lingering feeling sits quietly at the center of the grief that I currently hold. And the truth is I'm still trying to make sense of what all this means, right? I'm a person who studies Pilina, I study intimacy. And I thought I had a really clear sense of what that means going up to the mountain and then on the mountain it changed and I came down, I was like, okay, I have new ideas about Pilina. Um, 
but who the hell knows what that means now in COVID where our norms of gathering and relating to each other have had to shift so drastically in such a short period of time. It's nearly impossible for me to imagine today standing arm in arm with my Wahui. Um, I watch videos of us on the Mona and it feels like a different life. The paper that I revised for you folks today was originally about how our Mo'olalo and our Kupuna teach us that it's our pilina to aina to each other that gives us the kuleana and the mana to govern our own lands. That it is, it's that emotional affect that actually gives us the power to lead. Um, it was also about how important it is that we continue to find new ways to build that intimacy amongst each other. And so when I originally wrote this, I thought I knew what that would look like. I thought I knew what that would require. Today I have no clue. I'm just like everyone else. Everything I thought I knew about Pilina is being forced to shift and grow. And I'm too much in the middle of this shift to say anything meaningful about it. So instead of pretending that I have the answers, I'll just leave a few things that I learned in the last 18 months. One of the greatest lessons I learned during our time as Allahui and the Mauna was that when we are grieving and we are aspiring for something better, these feelings come with an intense, even desperate need and longing to be in Pilina with each other. Um, as an introvert, this is like strange, right? But when I am grieving about something about our Aina, I want to do that beside you. I want to link arm in arm. I want to sing our songs. Another lesson I'm learning from all of this is that we passionately wish to create and live a better future. I, I really believe that now more than ever, that our people want an alternative, but we desperately also want to walk into that together that many of us are far less likely to cut people off because their vision of a future is different than ours. Um, I personally feel much less like, as someone who's usually really black and white, um, this is something I'm learning from Alicia Garges. She talks about how our opponents have a home for our people. So that means we need to cast our arms out wide. So, so this is one of the things I think we're gonna have to think about more critically today. Um, and in the next few months and the next few years is how do we make space for truly the diversity of our people and our experience so that as we continue to build this lahui and this aupuni, whatever that looks like, that we're all there. Um, to me, Aloha Aina teaches me that we all have to be there or we didn't do it right. So in 2020, among our greatest challenges will not just be creating a new economy or reimagining a more ethical health system, but also taking seriously how we hold closely to each other in this time of great vulnerability. At a time when our leadership refuses to put the health and needs of our people before the wealth and desires of tourists and big business. I mean, what, something like thousands of tourists are on their way here right now. They are coming to your beaches. They're, the state's gonna, the companies are gonna shut down your access to said beaches so that we can give these tourists what they've been needing because they've been grieving for so many months because they can't come here. Um, what a great example, right? The way that our leadership really doesn't give it doesn't care about us and our needs and our aina that has had such a great opportunity to heal in these last few months as hard as hard as it has been for us. Since everything we know about Pilina or everything I thought I knew about Pilina demands showing up to our aina to each other, are we ready to reimagine our most sacred and routine ceremonies and rituals? Will we commit to new ways to practicing aloha when our survival depends on it? These are the questions I carry with me today. And so I just want to finish with a poem. Um, and then I guess we can, oh, what time do we have till? Am I almost done? Did I eat up all the time? 1.30. Okay, cool, perfect. So I'm gonna read a poem and then we'll have 30 minutes for questions. Um, one of my favorite ceremonies while living on the Mauna was every morning 
after the cattle guard, after the cattle guard, my tent flooded, just completely flooded. I couldn't sleep in it anymore. Uh, this is a part of the massive uh, Kupuna pulling strings, love, Heoli Osorio love story. Uh, but my tent flooded. Malia Holloman said, oh, you don't have a tent? You can come stay in our tent with Havane and um, Mehana Kihoi. And my favorite, my favorite rituals after that was that every morning we would wake up to the uncles chanting Eala E on the pu'u right outside at the ahu right outside of our tent um and me pulling out my phone to write a poem and then reading it to them and this uh this is like the first or second poem I wrote and read to them so I'm going to share it with you folks today it's Wednesday and I find myself standing in the shadow let me stop sharing my screen sorry okay it's Wednesday and I find myself standing in the shadow of a Mona that loves me like islands emerging from the sea like a sky scattering herself in stars, like a lakui kanaka growing. I'm standing in the mullu of a movement that's captured a generation's heart and attention. I find myself here, my body, a kipuka expanding into Pele's pahoi hoi grip, holding, holding, holding my quiet. And in my silence, I hear her wailing. It's Wednesday and I find myself without searching, arms linked in a line of women I barely know, but was destined to love. A line of women stretching back for thousands of generations. Pole turned light, turned kuko'a, turned slime, turned gods in a time of mere men. Who more fierce than these bodies of islands, these bodies of women, these moku turned islands spilling into our sea of islands, these hands stretched out, feeding a generation accustomed to starvation. It's Wednesday and I'm holding her arms like I am holding this mo'olalo, strong but tender enough to let both breathe deep. I am praying to be a wahine worthy of this moment, worthy of these hands holding me right back. And then Auntie tells me, this is Auntie Maxine Kahulelio. Auntie tells me we are the generation they always dreamed of. So it's Wednesday and now I am weeping. And every kupuna that ever fought, ever cried, ever died so that we would know for sure how to stand is singing right through me and somehow I am still standing, arms linked in a line of women holding me, and all I have to offer them is this story that is incomplete. Mahalo. Wow, mahalo, Dr. Osorio. Um, I think you had many meaningful things to say about Pelina, despite what you may have said. Um, yeah, I think that was just beautiful and amazing.